Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. There's a tradition of the church, uh, the Episcopal church, but broadly the liturgical church. There's this tradition of the church that dictates that during a funeral, we cover the casket. Now, Holy Communion has a very simple, beautiful um, white cloth for the purpose. It's called a pall. So you have the trivia, right? It's called a pall. And we've got one for a casket and one for an urn as well. And more than once in my ministry, I've had to explain and negotiate with surprised families about this tradition. And these days, you can spend a small fortune on a coffin. And what good is a fancy casket if you can't tell the difference between a hand-carved walnut and a simple pine box under the church's fabric? If you're buried from an Episcopal church, no one will know what the box looks like. People only see the cloth that belongs to the church. The same Paul covers us all. In the tradition of the church, we are all equal in death. Sometimes our church's traditions can seem silly. We wear a lot of funny outfits, we make strange gestures, and we walk in parades that trace their origins back to Hebrew and Roman times, thousands of years. But sometimes our traditions communicate important meaning. And sometimes they push back against the assumptions, the background theology of our culture. And sometimes our traditions help us to follow Jesus. Our service today features one of Jesus' most famous stories from the Gospel of Luke. In a few of my sermons recently, I've noted that this series of teachings from Jesus pushes against an assumed background theology, ideas about God that are just there in the culture's background. And today we encounter one of Jesus' central pushbacks, one of the ways Jesus resists the background theology of his day and of our day. Listen to how Jesus begins his parable. He introduces the main character. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen. Pause. In the first line, Jesus is signaling to his readers. Very few folks could afford fine linen. And purple was such a rare commodity, such a rare dye, that it was often reserved for royalty. This character is rich. He's got it, and he flaunts it. In in Jesus' day, there was this background theology that went something like this. Rich people are rich because they are blessed by God. Wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Things really aren't so different today in our culture's background hashtag blessed theology, are they? It's a very simple theology. If you're rich, if you are powerful, you must have done something right in God's eyes. If you are poor, if you are struggling, you must have done something wrong. Makes some logical sense. God rewards the faithful and punishes the sinful, right? Jesus pushes back. And Jesus resists this background theology. And Jesus preaches a reversal of the expected. Lori helpfully introduced that term from the scholars in her sermon last week. Often in Luke's gospel, there's a reversal going on. And here, Jesus reverses the expected. Jesus turns the world upside down. 
this story is a powerful reversal. Notice we never learn the rich man's name. We learn the poor man's name, Lazarus. How often is that the case in news, in fiction? How many cover stories of Forbes magazine do we see touting the 100 most kind-hearted poor folk? It doesn't happen. We usually know the name of the wealthy and the poor remain nameless. A homeless woman appears in the news. No name. Jesus names Lazarus. Jesus knows the name of the vulnerable. Jesus turns our expectations upside down. In this story, Jesus upends our understanding of how blessing works. Jesus preaches about God's economy in a way that defies our norms. Because if the rich man's wealth was an earthly sign of God's blessing, why does the poor man end up in heaven while the rich man is down in the flames? I need to pause for another moment here and say simply, there are other instances in the Gospels of Jesus pushing back, reversing our common understanding of heaven and hell, that particular background theology. There are other places in Jesus' teaching when he pushes back on the paradigm that some people are saved and many people are damned. Jesus pushes back against that too. I'll hold that sermon for another day. But here in this story, I think heaven and hell, they're more of a rhetorical device for Jesus. Today's teaching is economic, but it's about redefining wealth, redefining blessing. The world wants to ascribe a great deal of meaning to monetary riches. The world wants to weigh a soul based on the number of zeros on a paycheck. The world looks at the linen and the purple and says, ah, God has blessed this man. Jesus says it's not that simple. Wealth isn't a measure of blessing. It's also not a measure of damnation. Jesus spent time with the poor and the wealthy. Scholars tell us that Mary Magdalene, she was most likely a rich woman who was funding the whole ministry. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are wealthy and powerful members of the ruling elite. And they follow Jesus quietly and then not so quietly support the young upstart. Jesus finds himself at table with the poor, yes, but also in the homes of centurions and tax collectors, folks who are making money in the Roman state. Wealth on its own is neither a blessing or a curse in Jesus' ministry. The, the question that Jesus brings to today's parable and today's story, I believe, is this. What is your money doing for your soul? What is your money doing for your soul? The rich man's wealth has bought a certain degree of status, a certain degree of comfort. Lazarus' lack of wealth has caused problems. Lazarus isn't covered with fine linen. He's covered in sores. Lazarus can't afford basic health care. He's hungry. He's down with the dogs. Lazarus' lack of money is exhausting and isolating. Poverty is lonely. Now, Lazarus' loneliness is exacerbated by the rich man's wealth. 
We hear that Lazarus sits outside the rich man's gate. You see, the rich man's money, it bought him more than food, more than the nice clothes, more than symbols of status and power. The rich man's wealth bought a wall, bought a gate. The rich man used his money to keep Lazarus and all the Lazarus-like characters at a distance. Brings us to Abraham. In the story, after both Lazarus and the rich man die, we have a dialogue with the great patriarch. Abraham himself. The rich man appeals to Abraham from the flames, and Abraham is saddened. Child, he says. Child, remember during your life you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. A great crevasse has been fixed between us and you. A great crevasse. Here's my big question about the parable. It's not exactly resolved in the text, but I have a hunch. Here's the question. Who built the separation between the rich man and Lazarus? And notice, Jesus doesn't say God has declared. Jesus doesn't say all wealthy people are separated from my poor sheep who will be comforted. No. Jesus says a great crevasse has been fixed. Who fixed the chasm? Who enforced the separation? Jesus seems to be saying the separation in death is linked to the separation that was enforced in life. The rich man invested in keeping Lazarus and all the Lazarus-like characters out. Perhaps tellingly for our culture, for the resonances we have with this first century Palestinian story, Tellingly, in our culture, there's this famous poem by Robert Frost. It's more famous for one particular line than for the whole poem. It's called The Mending Wall, and, and the often quoted line you know well, good fences make good neighbors. Yeah. The problem is the poem is misquoted. That line is part of the poem, but taken out of context, it's used to say we ought to make sure we maintain separations. Poets will tell you the quotation that way undermines the meaning of the whole poem. Let me read a couple more lines for you from Robert Frost, the same poem that has the line, good fences make good neighbors. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. If the rich man had asked to know what he was walling out, if he'd been able to know and to help Lazarus in life, would he be in torment in death? If he hadn't been shut up inside, would that crevasse have been fixed? In our weekly Bible study this week, one of the participa participants pointed out that even in death, the rich man is trying to enforce the separation. Every Wednesday we gather in the lounge and we talk through the lessons for the coming Sunday. And one of the participants noticed that twice, twice the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus on an errand. He treats Lazarus like a servant even in death. The paradigm he has inherited, his lens on wealth, that background theology is so strong that he can't see Lazarus as anything but someone to be sent on an errand. 
The question Jesus seems to be asking in the story, I'll repeat again. What is your money doing for your soul? In the case of the nameless wealthy character, the money is making him smaller, more isolated, more afraid. Appearances can be deceiving. All that purple and linen might look good. The smells of the fine feasts are enticing. But this man's love of wealth has blinded him, has walled him off, literally and figuratively. Jesus is saying something surprising here, something that I promise is true. He's redefining wealth. He says this, The wider your circle of friends, the wider and deeper your community, the more rich your life will be. When you break down walls, when you form friendships across economic lines, across borders, across divisions, your life will be richer. Jesus was often disparaged for the company he kept. This fellow shares his table with sinners. He ate with Samaritans, women, Romans, tax collectors, prostitutes. He gave his time freely to the them the other in his society. Jesus in his stories and in his life taught us something surprising about wealth. You see, it turns out you can't buy God's blessing and you can't defend it either. Not with a wall, not with a gun. What if our economic wealth was put to work in a way that turned the world upside down? What if our wealth protected the lives and the rights of those who are fleeing violence in Central America? What if we gave up some of our valuable time to help folks right here in this neighborhood who are struggling to make ends meet get their laundry done? What if we invested energy in building community across racial lines, divisions of language, expressions of gender, differences in sexual orientation, ability and age? What if we worked to build a network of relationships that could challenge the segregation in our city, our nation, and our world? Wealth is defined differently by Jesus, and I think we've got a good start here at Holy Communion. We might find ourselves discovering the deeper meaning of God's blessing, not the bad background theology our world offers. We might just learn that God's blessing isn't measured by our bank accounts. We might help our neighbors and our friends learn that same. God doesn't care how much money you have. God cares what your money is doing for your soul. God cares what your money is doing for your neighbor's soul as well. Does it really matter whether they bury you in a pine box or a gold sarcophagus? Does it matter? However much money it looks like your loved one spent on the thing, that casket is going into the ground. What if we valued money less as a status symbol and more for its use in changing the world? What if our money helped turn the world upside down? Imagine if in a few weeks we had to hold an emergency meeting here at Holy Communion. Our, our annual giving campaign will begin in just a couple of weeks. Imagine if early in that campaign we had to hold an emergency meeting because we had to decide together how to fund further outreach, how to fund more ministry, because the generosity had poured in in such a way that it was an emergency. There were too many funds available. 
Imagine if we invested together to build a world where every life is valued, where no one is walled out, where wealth is measured not in dollars, but in unlikely relationships. Measuring wealth in terms of relationship, there is no question. It's good for your soul. Amen.